Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Those who are going to Little Worship can be uh, dismissed at this time. If you're staying with us, I invite you to open your Bibles. Uh, Luke 16, or follow along there in your bulletin, uh, Luke chapter 16, as we continue our time in the gospel of, of Luke. You know, growing up, uh, one of at least my favorite movies uh, was Back to the Future Part 2. Um, and if you've seen any of the Back to the Future movies, you know, that's the one with Michael J. Fox as Mark, Marty McFly. And he's, uh, he and Doc take their DeLorean time machine 30 years into the future. And as a, I was a kid, as a kid watching that, my imagination was blown away by the hoverboards, the flying cars, uh, and then those really, really awesome self-lacing, self-tying shoes called, you know, the Nike Air Mags, right? But there was this other scene that really left me dreaming. I mean, I've spent so much time in my life thinking about this. Um, if you remember, there's a scene where the bad guy character named Biff got a hold of a sports almanac, uh, a book that detailed all the statistics and all the scores for all major sporting events from the years 1950 to 2000. And he found a way to get that almanac. He jumped into the time machine and went back to his younger self in 1955. And he gave that book to his younger self. And he essentially said, look, I am, I am giving you a gift. If you want the good life, if you want a beautiful future, here it is. This has every score of every game for like the next 45 years. All you have to do, like go to Vegas, play some bets, you're set. Okay. All right. Have you ever wanted something like that to happen to you? To get some, some information from the future, but you can have it today and it'll affect how you live today and it'll maybe make things better for you in the future? I sure do. What if, what if I told you that Biff from Back to the Future isn't the only one who has been gifted with future information? Uh, what if I told you that Luke 16 even, now Jesus didn't get into a time machine, but he still reached into every one of our futures. He got an almanac of sorts and he, he brought it and he is giving it to us this morning. So in our passage that we're about to read, in one way or the other, Jesus is telling us where all of our lives are heading. And so, uh, let's go to God's Word and hear this gift as Jesus gives us a glimpse uh, into our future. So this is God's Word, Luke 16, 19 through 31. Well, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed and what fell from the rich man's table, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Well, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip... To, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, 
and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Well, the rich man said, Well, then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five, bro- I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Let's pray before we walk through this. Father, this is very sobering, very sobering, like in-your-face passage about what is in all of our futures. So Lord, we ask that your spirit would come and help us to, to walk through this uh, in a way that is convicting, challenging, uh, but also just equipping and, and uplifting. As Lord, teach us. We ask this in Christ. Amen. So this, <laughs> this week, uh, one of our members was attempting to explain the card game of bridge to me. Um, I never play bridge, and apparently there is like special terminology that you have, he may have told me all this wrong. I may be talking about another game, but uh, this, this opening bid that happens at the beginning, there's certain kind of words, certain lingo that you use so that you and your partner can be on the same page. And, and since I don't really know that vocabulary of, of bridge, most, most of that explanation kind of just went right over my head. Uh, apparently to play bridge well, you need to know the vocabulary of bridge. Okay. All right. A light bridge, there are many spiritual realities uh, that we learn about in Scripture where if, if we don't understand the lingo of that spiritual reality, it's really easy to get confused. And what the Bible says about the afterlife is definitely one of those. Because we can read, we can read through our Bibles and we see words like Sheol or Hades or Abraham's bosom or paradise or hell or Jehenna or the third heaven. And we think, like, what in the world? Is all these, like, different places? What all, what's going on? And so before we get too deep here, I think it's really important that for, for once and for all, we all get on just, we're all on the same page with a, a biblical theology of afterlife lingo, okay? So in the New Testament, I mean, sorry, the Old Testament, when someone died, they their soul went to Sheol is what they called it. Sheol was just the, the general uh, place of the dead. Um, that was just a general Hebrew word for the afterlife. And like the New Testament, the Hebrews also believed that Sheol, just the, the general place of the dead, was comprised of two different compartments. Uh, one was the place of those who rejected God, uh, the unrighteous, which was called Hades. And then the other was the place of the people of God, the people of faith, which they called paradise, and then over time, they called it Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. Uh, but regardless of all these third heaven, paradise, Abraham's bosom, they were all talking about the same place, uh, what we would call heaven. Okay? okay, well, when Jesus came to earth, he definitely taught about heaven. 
uh, the kingdom of heaven, and many, many other things that we've been learning about as John's been teaching the adult Sunday school class on heaven. However, you know, progressive Christians today and first-year religion majors and non-believers will be quick to argue that Jesus never taught about hell, that he never even used that word. And, and to their point, we could say that, I mean, they're, they're technically correct in that Jesus never used the literal word hell because hell is a word derived from an Anglo-Saxon word derived from a combination of Old English, Old Norse, and Old High German that didn't come around to about 725 A.D., and so, no, he didn't use the, the word hell, but rather he used something even more vivid. Uh, so in the Gospels, when our English translations say hell, Jesus used the word Jehanna. And in that word, Jesus was doing something that master teachers do. So to, to vividly describe what life was like without God. Uh, he, he didn't go and give like, let me give you a theological lesson on what it's kind of like. But rather, he pointed them to something that was as close as you could get on earth to, to describe what, it was, what Hades was like. And so it's something they could relate to. Because Gehenna was a, a literal place. It was a ravine on the south side of Jerusalem where centuries before Jesus' time, they had had these really strange, you could call them like Blair Witch-like murder-type thing going on in this, this ravine, this valley. And they had child sacrifice. And, and over time... Most Hebrews, Jews, began to view that whole area as cursed. Like, it's just God-forsaken. You don't want to live there. You don't even want to go there. And so what do you do with an area that you, nobody wants to live in? You can't develop it. Um, well, they, over time, Jerusalem turned it into their trash heap. That became the city dump of Jerusalem. And when the pile of trash got too big, they didn't have bulldozers to compact it. They just set the whole thing on fire. And it was always filled with smoke, always smoking. And if, if the fire wasn't blazing, then it was smoldering. You know how fires can just smolder. Uh, so it's constantly ashy, very dry. Okay. Because of that historical reality, unbelievers will argue that Jesus wasn't talking about hell. He was just talking about the dump. But that's not what Jesus was doing. When Jesus taught about the very real place called Hades... He said, let me tell you what it's like. Let, let me tell you what it's like in kind of a way that you can understand. It's a lot like Jehanna. You know what Jehanna is like, right? And in that single word, every first century here would immediately have this vivid picture of a smoldering place of destruction and neglect. In other words, for them, Jesus' original audience, it was obvious. To reject God was to be utterly desolate, spiritually dark, and endlessly oppressed. So, yes, Jesus taught very clearly about, about hell, which then brings us to our passage here. And, and just full disclosure, there's a ton of debate over whether this is a parable or not. Some have argued that since Luke didn't call it a parable, then what we just read needs to be taken as straightforward teaching um, and of what heaven and hell is like. And so people will say, who take that view, will say that uh, there are people in hell who can see people in heaven, and we can kind of talk back and forth, and it's this kind of weird dialogue that happens between heaven and hell. But there are also many scholars, and I tend to agree, who argue that though Luke doesn't literally call this a parable, given its context, it reads very much like one, which means this is very likely a, a simple story told by Jesus to make a spiritual point. Okay? 
And, and so Phil Riken notes to that, even though it may not give us a literal description of the geography of heaven or hell, it still contains a lot of truth about time and eternity. And so with that, the story of Jesus probably best divided into three scenes that we see through that, which were going to be our three really brief points this morning. Uh, so first, Jesus tells us, or we, we meet the characters, right? Jesus tells us about two very different men. Uh, one was rich, the other was poor. And we learned that one was clothed in high-end designer clothes. You know, in this day, it was insanely rare and ultra-spendy to dye something purple. Um, you know, typically only royalty wore the color purple. So this man's in purple. He's covered in purple. Uh, the other was covered in sores. One was seemingly healthy. The other disabled. He even had to be laid. He had to be carried and laid at the gate of this rich man. One was a foodie. He ate only the, the best foods, the richest foods, and he ate a lot of it. Jesus said that he feasted sumptuously every day. A gluttonous, gluttonous lifestyle. Whereas the other man was hungry, uh, he would have given anything. Can I just, just to have the crumbs that fall off the, the rich man's table? He'd be, he'd be fine with that. One had everything. He knew all the right people in all the right places. The other was a nobody. He had no friends. Uh, literally, his only comfort, his only companionship in life appear to be some dogs that come up to him to lick his sores. The rich man was fortified by his riches. He didn't. He couldn't see his true need. The poor man, his need was all he knew. That was his reality. And so we learn that the rich man knew the poor man. He recognizes him up in heaven. He knew his name. And so he'd probably seen him countless times at the gate of his house. And so he had every, every day he had the opportunity to feed the hungry and to dress the naked and to heal the sick. And so, uh, like, uh, of course, it's impossible. You know, there is such a thing as compassion fatigue, right? It's, it's impossible to be compassionate to everyone, to meet every single need that we ever see. But to have no desire, and that's what our Old Testament was saying. Like, look, you can be the most spiritual, the most righteous, the most go-to-church person there is, but like to have no desire to show mercy and I'm not talking about the whole world, but to have no compassion for that one person in your sphere that you actually have the means to help, like you can help them. To have no desire to do that, that that's very telling. As John said, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against his brother, how does God's love abide in him? Well, of course, the implication is it doesn't. It doesn't. And real quick, this, this story, this is not a condemnation of the rich. Like he, he, he's not saying that the rich man went to hell because of his riches, okay? Though probably many will because of their riches. Nor is he saying that Lazarus went to heaven because he was poor. No, as Alistair Begg put it, look, Jesus could have told a story about a politician and his power. It's something that he really found his identity in. A student and their brain an athlete and their ability, a preacher and his eloquence, a homemaker and their home, they're just proud of it, or a Presbyterian and their theology. You know, it's a story of whether or not a person has let the reality of eternity influence their life today and how they use what they've been given during their time. 
And so the question comes, you know, do we hoard our abilities, our theology for our own self-indulgence? Or do we use it? Do we use them for God's glory and the good of others? Or do we say, look, I don't need God. I know we don't say it with our words, but with our life, we say, I, don't, I just don't need God because I've got my intellect and I've got my fat portfolio. I have my sex appeal. I have my people. I have my whatever, right? And I'm good. But as we see in this story, just because we have something now doesn't mean we're always going to have it. Which brings us to the second scene and death. At some point, both of these men die in Westminster. At some point, every single one of us in this room will as well. You know, people call death the great equalizer. But here we see that it's, it's so much more than that. I mean, death, really, death changes everything. At death, the poor man, Lazarus, was carried by the angels to heaven, to Abraham's side, we're told. And there's so much packed into that one half of a verse. Because, you know, Abraham was, Abraham was the father of all who realized that they could not save themselves, right? Father, he's the father of all those that see that salvation comes by faith in what someone else has done, you know, namely God. And so Lazarus went to heaven not because he was poor, but because by faith he believed and he trusted God's grace alone. So the Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes what's happening in this passage uh, by, by stating this. They state, or it states that the souls of God's people at their death immediately return to God. It's instantaneous. Re- immediately return to God. Like there's no line, there's no like you're 10 deep at the Walmart checkout line and you're like, this is going to take forever. There's no like long hallway. That you, it's, it's like it's immediate. And, and this is a bit of speculation because this is, I mean, this isn't in the Bible, what I'm about to say, but Pastor Matt Chandler said that it's so instantaneous that, that he wonders if, like, the second before we die, just like the microsecond before we die, Jesus sends his angels to come to us on our deathbed, and they say, hey, why don't we get out of here? Why, why don't we finally get you home? So God's people are instantly with him. And then did you notice that though no one seemed to notice nor care to know this poor man, God knew him. Jesus is being very intentional here. Like it's not a coincidence that of the two men that we're talking about here, the poor man is the only one given a name in the story. And it's to say, look, you can be rich, fit, fine. You can be the cat's meow in this life. But if you aren't in Jesus, you are a nobody. You are eternally anonymous. But if you are in Christ, no matter how little or unknown you are now, oh, your name will go down in cosmic history as one who is known by God. Okay? So we're seeing this great change that, that happens at death. Well, now the Pharisees would have been shocked to hear then the second half of that verse because the rich man also died and was buried but ended up in Hades. You know, there's no mention of the poor man being buried or having a funeral, but the rich man, he has a funeral. He has a big-time funeral. And who knows, maybe even at his funeral, all of his rich friends got up and eulogized about all of their rich people memories and rich people 
things they did and places they went. And, and who knows, even if he gave enough to the local synagogue, maybe even the rabbi tried to preach him into heaven. This is a really great man. It would have been quite the funeral. But as we know, you know, we can ha- be having funerals and memorial services, but that's not, the, that's not the whole story. Something else is going on. At death, the rich man realized that he couldn't leverage his wealth anymore, that he couldn't leverage his bravado or, or who he knew to get ahead anymore. Like all this time, the entrance into heaven demanded something that he was not ready to admit. Uh, that he didn't have what it took. That he was a sinner in need of a savior. That all the blood of bulls and goats and all the Benjamin Bentleys and Broads, booze could not, could not save him. So what's Mr. Jesus, is he, he's, he's telling us this now. So that we're not surprised when, when you do get to this point in your, your life or your or death. And you're not surprised when all of your doing more and trying harder does not get you into heaven. Just because you live on a certain street now, just because you have a certain lifestyle, just because you have, are in the, like a certain club, doesn't mean that's going to transfer into the afterlife. What we see here is like Jesus is the only door. He's the only way in. So would you say, nothing in my hands I bring. Like simply to the cross I cling. It really is that simple. Well, once in hell, the rich man, he, in the story, he looks up and he sees Abraham from far away. And there and there's that, that poor guy, Lazarus, by his side, which brings us to our third and final scene. In, in hell, the rich man starts crying out for help. And Father Abraham responds with some really sobering news that we've got to know. First, the rich man we see was in such agony uh, that, that even, can you imagine being in such agony that you don't, just a drop of water w- w- would be such a huge relief. And so he cried out, Abraham, send Lazarus down just to dip his finger and just to give me a drop of water. I'm anguishing here. And notice the tenderness in Abraham's reply. He even uses the word child. And he doesn't wag his finger. He just says very kindly, he says, look, I'm sorry, but it just doesn't work like that. He says, you've already had every opportunity to lay down your dependency on your things and to trust God for salvation. You've you've already had every opportunity in your life, but you didn't. And so the only consolation you now have is what little your riches already gave you in life. And so Abraham, he's, he's saying, listen, this is fair. This is just. You're in hell because you wanted it more than God. You rejected him, and so God simply gave you over to the desire of your heart. And then Abraham said, besides, a a great chasm has been placed, as C.S. Lewis would call it, the great divorce, right? A great chasm has been placed between heaven and hell, and no one can cross it. Lazarus couldn't even go to you if he wanted to. And again, Alistair Begg said to this, you know, we, we all understand the concept of judgment to some degree is Right? We all understand judgment because most of us, if we have a job, we have annual reviews or we take exams at school. We try out for cheerleader, for dance, for the team. We sit for our boards. You know, Josh recently went through the trial, uh, uh, ordination trials. And there's this 
there's this kind of pass or fail. There's this judgment that happens there, right? And so how then could we get so worked up at the thought that the creator of the world would ask his creatures to give an account? You know, Hebrews 9 says that it is appointed for man to die once. And then after that, what? Judgment. After that, we face judgment. And God's judgment, as we see here in the story, it is just. And it's final. It's final. It's it's sobering and yet awesome, right? Because Abraham's saying, listen, it's sobering. He's like, listen, you can go to hell and you, you cannot climb your way back up to heaven. Like, you cannot, you cannot climb your way out of hell. It doesn't work like that. And at the same time, if you, if you go to heaven, it is impossible for you to slide down to hell. Like, you just, you just can't. Once you're in by Christ alone, <laughs> then you're in like Flynn. You're there. And we can have utmost confidence in that. Okay? Which then brings us to the climax of this entire story. So finding out that he, he's in hell and he's kind of stuck in hell. No relief. He then begs, okay, well, could you at least send Lazarus back to my father, back to my, my brothers, to my family to warn them and plead with them to be saved? Y'all, that, that rocked me this week because we hear, especially for whatever reason in country music, uh, we hear the craziest things, right? We hear Hank Jr. sing, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, then I don't want to go. I'm like, well, you don't have to go, all right? Um, or Tyler Childers, who I love Tyler Childers, but he sings, if I can't take my hounds to heaven, if I can't hunt on God's land, I'd rather load my dog box up and go to hell with all my friends. I'm like, okay. You, you, you okay? You can go to hell, that's fine. Um, you know, we hear stuff like that, and we kind of joke, I mean, people, theoretically people, joke about, look, if I go to hell, then at least my friends will be there, and we can party, right? You know, hell's going to be a lot more fun. Okay, and some of, you, some of us know this, like those of us who have experienced something truly traumatic in our life, like truly, like I'm talking like really hard. If you've gone through something really hard, very traumatic, um, you, you end up, something weird happens in our, our psyche. It's like we're, we, we get broken, and we start saying something like, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Like, I, I don't want anybody to go through this. Well, that's what happens with this rich man. Once the, the actual reality of hell hit, he stopped thinking about my hunting dog and if it ain't like Dixie. He's like, all that broke him, and he's like, I don't want anybody to be here. I don't want my brothers here. I don't want my dad here. You've got to get Lazarus to my house to tell them. And Abraham responded. He said, look, they've already got what they need. The scriptures, will, they, the scriptures tell them the way of salvation. And here we see the heart of unbelief, don't we? Because the rich man was like, the, the, the Bible and like Jesus and like Sunday school, like, that's so cute. But I'm like, we need something more than that. The Bible isn't enough. If you could just like bring out the big guns, I'm talking like send a big time preacher to their house to convince them. Or you could even better, you could send Lazarus back from the dead, send him down and let them do a miracle. And if, you, if they saw a miracle, a grand gesture, then they would definitely repent and believe then. They would definitely do that. And then here's the bombshell and the call back to just the ordinary means of grace that God has given us. Abraham said, 
if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if God's word won't convince them, then neither will someone who rises from the dead. Um, you know, the irony, of course, is that later Jesus would raise a man from the dead, um, a man named Lazarus, nonetheless. And what happened when Lazarus was raised from the dead? Did mass revival break out? No, the Pharisees tried even harder to kill Jesus. Jesus would rise from the dead. And I, I suppose some Pharisees and many people did. I mean, that's why we're here today. But a lot of people rejected him. And so what we see is from history is that it, you know, it's tempting for us to want this grand gesture. Right? That if God would just come down and audibly speak to me, then I would for sure know what to do, and I would repent, and I would believe, and like, why is God being so, so shady if he would just speak to me? But y'all, here we find, and y'all, this is, this is so important, here we find that in the scriptures, God is speaking to you, okay? And he is laying out the way of forgiveness and hope and life eternal. And so Jesus wants us to take this gift this morning of a glimpse into our future, uh, this almanac of sorts, and give up, like, give up seeking life in your riches, okay? And, and give up keeping up with the Kardashians. Like, give up this idea of seeking your life in success or in your athletic abilities and say, Jesus, it's always been about you. You paid my price. You purchased my place in heaven. I fully admit my need of you. So I cry, uncle. Well, this morning, Jesus invites you to do just that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this, this gift of this vision of the future um, that at death... There's a great reversal. And if we're not anchored to you, it doesn't matter what we have going for us in this life. It, it's not going to be good. Uh, and yet, Father, we can have nothing in this life but Jesus. And we're more than fine. So, Father, would you convict, convict us of, of all of our bowing and even whoring after other idols and things that just don't give life. And, Lord, show us Show us that life is found only in Jesus. And Lord, may that reality not make us prideful or puffed up. May we, just like we, we find here, uh, may it make us tender. And may it give us a heart for the loss, uh, a heart for the broken. Uh, Lord, may we respond to your message by showing mercy uh, to others. Uh, so Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for this gift. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.